Uh, yeah, I'm going to read the Bible for us, um, starting from Isaiah chapter 11. And it's the first five verses, and it's on page 686 of the Pew Bibles. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and the, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Let's continue reading from God's word. Uh, if you'd like to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 starting from verse 7, which is found on 1,203. So we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 to 19. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Well, good evening, folks. I keep putting this in the wrong place for the band, so I'm going to get it right this time. There we go. Um, you'll forgive me if I uh, cough. My whole family's had 
a bit of a cold lately, so uh, sorry if you're subjected to that. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would be with us this evening as we think about what uh, these words from 1 Peter. And we pray that you would teach us and change us for Jesus' glory. Amen. What time you think it is has a profound effect on how you live. Um, by what time it is, I don't just mean whether it's 8am or 2pm time for breakfast or for brunch or whatever. I mean where things are up to, uh, what point you're at in the progression of what's happening. Uh, when Lauren, my wife, went into labour with our daughter, Frances, uh, I was not ready. Uh, you are supposed to have a bag packed uh, full of all the things you might need for the labour. Heat packs, water bottles, food, clothes, you know, stuff like that. Gone are the days where the guy just sits outside on the bench. I did not have the bag packed. Uh, now, in my defence, that's because we were still six weeks out. Uh, we had had some indications the day before that things might be happening a bit early. But when we went to bed, uh, I said, maybe I should pack the bag. And she said, no, do it in the morning. Uh, and so I found myself frantically packing the bag at 1am, which is why all we had in the room with us were some sultanas. <laughs> uh, now, this is actually news, but we're having another baby in December, uh, which is exciting. Um, actually, I meant to do that in the announcement, so I didn't drop it now, but there you go. Um, I'm going to be ready in November. Uh, I'm not going to make that mistake again. A Mars bar, at least, would be good. But we live in the light of our view of the time, of where we think we're up to in the scheme of things. Um, this is true at a much bigger picture level as well. Uh, it's why we meet all sorts of claims about what's going on in the world. You know, like we're living in an age of fill in the blank, uh, progress, ideals, transition, anxiety. Is this the dawn of a new era? And so we should be excited and full of optimism. Or is it the dying of the light? <coughs> and so we should be filled with a sense of kind of loss and the tragedy of it all. Does social media and the internet mean we're entering a new time of communication and freedom? Or are we about to see things start to rapidly collapse as the negative effects for human civilization of our systematic destruction of the environment exponentially increase? What time is it? What's happening? Where are we up to in the scheme of things? These are important questions for the living of our lives. And they keep a large number of professional prophets and pundits in business. The passage before us this evening from 1 Peter chapter 4, which would be great to have open before you, 1 Peter chapter 4 from verse 7. <coughs> this passage revolves around a claim about what the time is what time it is, where things are up to. And what we see here is Peter describing the kinds of things we should expect and the kind of living that's that is appropriate given what time it is, given where we're actually up to. And in the midst of all sorts of claims about what's happening in our world, some of which will prove to be right, I suspect the environment ones actually are probably going to be about right, but others will prove to be wrong. This reminder of the time provides a point of stability to ground us to keep us clear-minded and focused on what matters most our passage falls into two halves 
both of which make a claim about the time. Verses 7 to 11, if you'll see there, flow out of that initial statement in verse 7 that the end of all things is near, or as we'll see is perhaps better, the goal of all things is near. And verses 12 to 19, which revolve around the claim in verse 17 that it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. So let's look at those two halves in turn. First, verses 7 to 11, the end of all things is near, writes Peter. Very dramatic. There's a problem, though, with the way we hear that statement. The Greek word used here is the word telos. And at a simple level, end is a perfectly reasonable translation of that word. But the Greek word actually has a different ring to it than end does for us. When we hear end, we hear finish, stopping point, the point after which everything ceases. But um, the Greek word telos didn't really feel like that, actually. Uh, It had a sense of more of the climax, the culmination, the goal, the fulfillment. It meant the end as in the purpose that something was headed towards, as in the end of an acorn is to be an oak tree. You know what I mean? Or the end of words is communication. Now that's really quite different. It has much more of a sense of purpose to it. It's about the goal towards which things are headed. And as such, it's essentially a good thing. The end of something is what it is meant for. And so when Peter says the telos of all things is near, his point is not mainly that everything is about to come to an end, but that things are about to reach their goal, their fulfillment, their purpose. Now that changes the feel of this, doesn't it? This verse is actually probably the most common candidate for the kind of cliched sandwich board announcement of doom. Here's an example. You know, this kind of guy. He looks very serious, doesn't he? Grim. And he's actually quoted 1 Peter 4, 7. There you go. The end is at hand or nigh. Um, But if it said uh, the goal is nigh, it would sound a bit different, wouldn't it? Here's Roger Fitzharding having a go at it yesterday. (laughs) We actually, we had a lot of fun. Uh, So that... That photo, you can, you can see that on Facebook this week, I think. Um, it feels different, doesn't it? Gets a different reaction. Now, make no mistake, we can lose that. It's going to distract everybody for the rest of the night. Make no mistake, the Bible does have a sense of end, meaning judgment. We'll see that in this passage. But it's a judgment that takes place within a fundamentally positive event. The end that is near is the purpose for which the world was made, the goal and culmination and destiny of all things. And as we'll see, this goal, this telos, is something wonderful. Now, one of the differences it makes when you when you kind of change that a little is that it changes the way you think you should act in the light of it. Um, I don't know what you'd do if you really thought the world was going to end. You know that question, what would you do if the world's going to end? I remember years ago... I was watching TV <coughs> just before Y2K. You remember Y2K? You know, people thought the world was going to end or whatever. And I was saying, what do you, you know, what would you do if the world was going to end? And people were like, oh, you know, just get drunk, party, sleep with lots of people. One guy actually phoned in. It was kind of 
honest but awful. He said, oh, I guess I'd, I'd probably just sit in my room and masturbate. Uh, kind of ugly. But at least, it's, you know, it, it's kind of awful, actually. But what Peter says we should do is completely different, thankfully. Thankfully, completely different. But it's different because he's not just talking about everything stopping. He's talking about everything coming to fulfillment. And so what makes sense is not to just freak out and and just retreat from normal existence and just do whatever, but to act, to get with the program, to act with the flow of this great event that's bringing everything to its climax. And Peter says this means four things. And they're four things you probably wouldn't have expected. Verse 7, first, he says we should be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Now, I take it that this means being able to be focused in prayer, being in a state that nothing's getting in the way of that. Our awareness of the time should lead us to making sure that we stay mentally in a state where we can deliberately and thoughtfully ask God for things. It's like Peter's saying, at any point, you could be called upon to pray. You know, like a, a gunslinger carrying his, you know, you might have to fight a battle at any point. But he's saying, you, at any, you have to be ready at any point to pray. You have to be mentally ready for that. Not fuzzy-headed, not drunk. You've got to be switched on. It's a, it's a call to kind of get on board what God is doing in our thoughts and desires and to be ready to play our part in that. Second thing, verse 8, we are to love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, we've seen this call to love one another before in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and here it's repeated with the same adjective. Uh, he says deeply, or it could also be persistently or earnestly, genuinely. Our awareness of the time, Peter says, should lead us to diligent, earnest love for other believers. And this is because, Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I don't think that's about forgiveness with God, you know, covering your sins with God. I think it's about the community and the way in which love can overcome smaller problems. Love can make up for a lot of other failures. In community, we inevitably stuff things up. We inevitably say the wrong thing to each other. We inevitably accidentally offend each other. And love can overcome that. This is about holding the community together in the face of crisis. Thirdly, third thing, verse 9. See it there? We're to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. It's not a complicated idea, but it is actually quite challenging. Hospitality is about showing generosity with your home and your possessions. And here again, and, and your time, actually, probably the hardest thing for us, your time as well. And here again, it's to be shown to one another and it is to be offered without grumbling. That's the tough bit. It's so easy, you see, isn't it, to grumble when you're being hospitable. Um, you know, you retire to the kitchen and you complain about how your guests are eating rather a lot and they didn't even bring wine and they made the toilet smell very bad. But Peter says, without grumbling, without complaining about how it's putting you out, 
And then fourthly, verses 10 and 11, we're to serve one another with the gifts God has given us. The idea of gifts is important in the New Testament. So let's just uh, notice a couple of things about it here. First, did you see there, the underlying idea is of stewardship. When Peter speaks of gifts, he means that each of us, each of us has been entrusted with something, something precious that doesn't belong to us, but has been put in our hands to be used for others. All the gifts belong to God, and he has given them to us for others. Second, notice that Peter doesn't really go into detail about what the gifts are, and that's because it's just not the most important thing. He just mentions speaking and serving. And he says that if you're speaking, you should do it as if your speech comes from God, which, I mean, think about what that would mean. It would mean being really careful about what you say. And service, as if your service comes from God, which means, you know, doing it well. And that's because that's in fact what's happening. God is working through each of us to give one another grace, whether by speech or action. Now, let me pause here and just ask you whether these things, these four things, are they they your focus? These are the things, says Peter, that in view of the time, in view of what's happening, should get our attention, should be real priorities for us. Are they getting your attention? Are you keeping your mind clear and alert so that you can pray? And are you devoting yourself to your fellow believers in this way? This is a really striking thing here, isn't it? Three times in just a few sentences, he says, to one another or to each other. There's a prioritizing of the Christian community here that's a bit shocking for us, isn't it? So let me ask you, as we've asked before in 1 Peter, are are your brothers and sisters getting your love? Are they getting your hospitality, your strength and your service? Are they getting you? Or are you always elsewhere? It's a challenge. We live in a different world to 1 Peter, and we shouldn't underestimate that. Community won't look exactly like it would have looked back then. We're mobile, we're far busier, I think, and society is completely different. But we mustn't sidestep this challenge to be committed to our brothers and sisters. Well, let's have a think about it then. Let's just keep pausing. Uh, What could it actually look like? How could we do it? Let me suggest some very practical ways we could apply these things. First, we could all commit to praying deliberately and regularly for church. Do you do that? Would you do that? Please do it. Please pray that God would build us and bless us and use us for good and keep us going in the right direction. Second, we could all take some small but deliberate steps towards prioritizing our relationships with one another. Let me suggest two. Phone or email somebody during the week and find out how they're going. And secondly, have a meal with someone from church sometime soon. Maybe some people you don't know that well. Maybe some people from your cluster or people you've just met or whatever. 
See, there's no ways, there's no way to do these things except practically, except by making time and space for each other. Finally, though, there's also a mindset shift we all just need to keep learning to make, whether you've made it before or this is the first time. And the mindset shift is this, to see everything we've been given, our strength, our abilities, our possessions, our availability, as not really ours, but as for others, as ours for others. What does that mean for you? What has God given you? To be given to others. And how can you do it? Churches work best when it's not just up to the ministers to come up with ideas. Because we're actually not normally very good at it. It's best when people take it upon themselves to come forward with suggestions. Now, communities always have to make decisions then about what they prioritize, what they commit to. We can't just do everything. But... The point is that it's up to each of us to steward God's gifts well and to find ways to use them for others. Can I urge you, brothers and sisters, to put your mind to doing that? Why? Because that is what makes sense in view of the time. Now, we'll come back to why it makes sense in view of the time in a minute. But before we do that, let's look at the second half of the passage. Verse 12. Here we turn to what the time means for the Christian community as it faces outwards into the world. And what we're told is that it probably involves difficulty. Don't be surprised, writes Peter in verse 12, that you're suffering. As if it was something out of the ordinary. In fact, it's completely normal. Now, we don't know exactly what troubles his readers were facing, uh, but it was not long after this letter was written that being a Christian actually became a criminal offence. But probably not at this point. But don't be surprised, he says. Don't be surprised, but instead rejoice. Why? We should remind ourselves that's actually an odd thing to do when you're suffering, to rejoice. But Peter says it's because... Suffering for being a Christian is a participation, or or literally in verse 13, a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. When you suffer because you bear Jesus' name, Peter's saying, you're actually sharing in a profound way in the suffering that Jesus has experienced. Now, that's a bit of a weird thought. So let's just talk about it for a moment. I, I think the key to that idea is the Bible's language of being in Christ Being a Christian means being in Christ, that is, joined or connected to him by his spirit, by faith. Now, that's why, actually, you become a Christian through, partly, is symbolized by baptism. Uh, You're joined to Christ in his death as you go down into the water and in his resurrection to life as you come up again. Being a Christian is about being connected to Jesus through faith by his spirit. And and what that means is that the church, as the body of people who are connected to him like that, the church kind of relives Jesus' experience at various points. And in particular, it means that the church suffers. Okay, that all may be kind of clear as mud, but Peter is talking in something like these terms. When you suffer as a Christian, he says... The Spirit rests on you. Did you see that in verse 14? The Spirit of glory rests on you. Uh, the Bible reading from Isaiah 11 was a reference to how the Spirit will rest on the Messiah. And I think we see that in the Gospels in Jesus' baptism. 
Peter's saying you're kind of sharing in Jesus' experience at that point. We're reliving his experience in our experience. And that, says Peter, is an incredible privilege. That's also why Peter keeps stressing that this doesn't apply to all kinds of suffering. Did you notice that in verse 15? We've seen similar things like this before, and now he says it again. You see, suffering is not spiritually significant in and of itself. It's only when we suffer for our faith and not because of wrongdoing. That's important because it stops you from feeling self-satisfied and proud when you shouldn't. Or feeling like the fact of suffering in and of itself shows you you're in the right. Uh, I read recently of a bishop who'd been under fire in the media because uh, of his failure to deal well with allegations of sexual abuse under his watch. And he'd interpreted that, that flack he was suffering as suffering for Christ. But that's a lot of nonsense. The point of Peter's words is to stop us from flattering ourselves like that and actually to make us ask really difficult questions. Suffering because we've done wrong is no credit to us at all and to claim that it is, is disgraceful. But there is also suffering because you're a Christian. And that, says Peter, is cause for rejoicing because it shows that you're joined to Jesus by the Spirit. Have you experienced that? I think some of you will have. Sometimes, though, I think we don't quite know what to make of this stuff about suffering. So let's just say a few things about it. First, we shouldn't exaggerate what Peter is talking about here. He says in verse 14, if you are insulted. Most of the time in this letter, actually, the persecution he's spoken about has been verbal attack. We shouldn't think that the only persecution that counts is if you're like literally thrown to the lions or something. Peter's just talking about verbal abuse, and that's actually not all that uncommon. I was talking to a man recently who, uh, with his wife, had been abused by a doctor because they had refused to abort their baby when a disability was discovered in an ultrasound. And the doctor had said that Christians like them were fools who loved to suffer. That's not true, actually. They just didn't think they had the right to kill a human fetus to avoid suffering. So we shouldn't exaggerate. This stuff does happen. But secondly, it doesn't always happen. Peter says it shouldn't surprise us if it does, but it doesn't always happen. In fact, in our world, it's it's pretty rare. Many people, most of the time, are very polite and respectful. Even around here, when I tell people I'm a minister, right, I represent... For a lot of people around here, a lot of what's wrong with the world. Most people just say, oh, good for you. You know, because many people are just nice. So let's not go trying to interpret everything as an insult. And don't assume there's necessarily anything wrong with your faith if you're not getting flack. Although, let me say thirdly, it is worth asking the question, isn't it? Because it's also possible that we escape suffering for our faith by holding, by hiding the things that offend people. By distancing ourselves from the difficult bits about Christianity. Or by going out of our way to make the points of difference in our lifestyle less obvious. You know what I mean. 
you deftly change the subject when something comes up that you'd rather not talk about. Someone asks you a straight question about what you think about something and you answer by saying, well, it's, it's very complicated. Or you find a way to make an excuse to your work colleagues so you don't have to have a difficult conversation about not going to a strip club. Now, some of this might be prudent at times to maintain relationships and whatever, but it's not necessarily commendable, actually. And sometimes, sometimes it's just being ashamed of being a Christian. And it's also not helpful to the people around us. Why? Again, because of the time. Verse 17, it is time, writes Peter, for judgment to begin with the family of God. See, the truth about the present time is that it is a time when judgment is beginning. That is, it is a time when the final realities are starting to be worked out and revealed in which right and wrong, good and evil, are beginning to be distinguished. Peter says that this beginning is taking place from within the family of God. And what he means, I think, is that, is that through difficulty, God's people are being tested, purified. God is beginning, even now, to make the final shape of his judgments clear to spell out how things are going to be in eternity. And ultimately, that judgment will affect everyone. This is what Peter envisages in the rest of verses 17 and 18. Do you see that there? If it begins with us, he says, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Not good. And that's why, you see, it's no service to others to disguise the differences between us and those around us, even the ones that will make other people annoyed, because these differences are reflections of ultimate realities which will one day determine the fate of everyone. God's judgment is beginning. His court is in session. And things will not continue as they are forever. And that's why we should expect to suffer. We should not seek it. Right? We're not masochists. Don't go out looking for it and praise God if we're spared it. It's great. But we should expect it. And when it comes, we shouldn't desperately try to avoid it, but we should do what verse 19 tells us to. Commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. I love, I love it how that idea of doing good comes in again at the end of the body of 1 Peter here. This is our calling in the world, you see, to just do good, to live for Jesus and use whatever opportunities we can for good and whatever happens because of that will happen. Let me conclude. We live in the light of an understanding of the time, of where we're up to in the scheme of things. And what time is it? Where are we up to? The two halves of our passage come together actually in saying one thing. It is time for Jesus to be glorified. We see this in the two key statements I skipped over on the way through. At the end of verse 11, have a look at them there. This is kind of the heart of the passage. 
At the end of verse 11, Peter explains the purpose we're to have in mind in our actions. And he says, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And then in verse 13, he says, rejoice in suffering with Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. The glorification of Jesus. That is the end, the goal, the climax to which all things are moving and which we are fast approaching even now. That is the shape the judgment of God will take and even now is taking. Jesus will be glorified. And so the right way to act is to act in accordance with that coming certainty that the glory of Jesus is about to be revealed, brothers and sisters, He will be known. He will be seen. He will be exalted. His glory will be revealed. And that's why the things we're called to in this passage make sense. Like the call to devote ourselves to Christian community and to stay awake so that we can pray because these are the things that fit with the fact That the time is coming nearer by the minute when Jesus will be revealed finally and permanently as the glorious Lord, the Son of God. So let me conclude tonight by just urging you to hear and take to heart this message. That the deepest truth about the time we live in is that Jesus will soon be glorified. And that what therefore makes the greatest sense in the world is for, is for us to be clear-minded for prayer and to love his people deeply and to ready ourselves to joyfully endure the consequences of showing God's judgments to the world. Because Jesus is the goal of all things. And one day soon, to him will be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.